Let's turn to the Word of God this morning, and we'll get back into our series in Acts. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them, turn to Acts chapter 13 again. And you might want to slip a bookmark in there, because we're going to be in this section of Acts, Acts chapter 13 and 14, for a couple more weeks, as we continue in this series that we've titled, The Light of Salvation. The title of the message this morning, which is week number 15 in our series, is Sent by the Spirit. Sent by the Spirit. And I want to read through these events that Luke gives us about the first stop on the first journey of the first formal missionaries of the Christian faith. So I want to start in uh, verse 2, where we were last week, and then we'll look at how the leaders of the church of Antioch gathered together, seeking the leading of the Lord. And here's what we're told in those first two verses. Now, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. Now, into verse 4, here's what we read. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, in these few verses here in Acts chapter 13, Luke covers a lot of ground for us, literally. (laughs) We start out the text there in Antioch, and Barnabas and Saul leave that city there, and they travel over to the coast to Seleucia, which is a port city there on the Mediterranean Sea, at least a day's journey from Antioch. And they get on a boat, and they, they get on that boat, and they go down across the Mediterranean to the island of Cyprus, and they land on the eastern edge of the island. And part of the reason they went here as the first stop on this first journey that they were taking as the very first formal missionaries being sent out by the church of Jesus Christ, I think is because this island is where Barnabas was from. We weren't weren't really clear on what town exactly Barnabas grew up in, but we know from Acts chapter 4 that he had grown up on this island of Cyprus there. So it's very likely that Barnabas knew people who still lived there. He had a burden to go back and tell those people that he knew at that place where he had used to live all about the truth of who Jesus Christ was so they could receive the salvation that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we think about that as kind of this preliminary thought, this explanation of why did they go there first, I don't want you and I to hear that as just a historical fact. 
I want us to see what was happening there as a model and a challenge for you and I to emulate. See, many of you in this room grew up here in this area, right? Several of you, your story is that you went off for a few years, some short periods of time. Maybe you went to college somewhere outside the area, or you had a stint of work away from this area, or had a military deployment, something like that. But you grew up, you went away for a little bit, and then you came back to this area because it's home, right? Reed says it's the closest place to heaven on earth, right? It's just about as perfect as you can be right here. This is where so many of you came back intentionally because you wanted to raise your families here because you understood and appreciated the culture and the way things happen here compared to other places around the world. So for so many of you, since that's true, you have chosen intentionally to come back if you've been away or to stay here in your homeland, the area where you are from, then look at Barnabas and see an example of how a Christian should live in the place they grew up. Barnabas was one of those guys who got called away for a while. He lived a while in Jerusalem, a while in Antioch, and then he wanted to go back to the place where he grew up, to the people that he knew there, so that he could tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because Barnabas was a real person, He's not just a name in the Bible. He was a real person. Then what is true for you was surely true for Barnabas at some point too. He knew he was going to run into people that knew him from when he was growing up. He was going to run into people who knew his family, who knew the dark secrets maybe, (laughs) who knew about the mistakes a young Barnabas would have made growing up the things he is not proud of, the things he kind of wish he didn't have to deal with, he was going to go back and meet some people who knew all of those things. But Barnabas overcame the fear and the discomfort of having to have conversations with people like that. That same fear that many of you feel, many of you have shared, that's your hang-up. That's why you don't feel like you can tell someone else about Jesus, because they're not going to hear me. They know what I did when I was 16, or 14, or, you know, or 22. Like, you fear that it's going to be uncomfortable, because, you know, I've got a past, and they know about my past. That was true for Barnabas, too. But he understood two things very clearly, and understanding these things for us today, I think, will give us the same type of motivation that Barnabas had to go overcome that and share about Jesus with the people he knew. The first is this. Barnabas knew the message of the gospel is powerful, life-changing, and eternity-impacting. What I mean is Barnabas knew the gospel of Jesus Christ can and does actually overcome people's natural disbeliefs, their opposition, their disinterest, the objections they throw up. Oh, you're going to tell me all about Jesus? I know what you've done. He knew the message of Jesus Christ was more powerful than any objection he may face from people who knew his past. And he knew that when someone receives the gospel of Jesus Christ, it leads to lives really being changed. The past, whatever is in your past, is no longer what defines you. Those mistakes aren't who you are. When you come to know Jesus Christ, you are made new. I mean, we sang about that this morning, right? We have a new name because we're a new creation in Christ. And further, Barnabas knew this is the most important thing. Don't let this roll off you too quickly. Barnabas knew 
he had the message of eternal life. And that there is no salvation, there is no hope of heaven apart from someone knowing who Jesus is and believing in the work he has accomplished. Barnabas knew all that to be true, and he knew a whole group of people that he had grown up with in places he had lived that did not have that knowledge, and he felt compelled to go and share the message of Jesus Christ with them. And second, what Barnabas understood was that he was being sent by the Holy Spirit to do that work. Now, when I say that, some of our minds and hearts in here are going to immediately jump to what we think is our escape clause. Okay, that first thing's true. I believe that too, so maybe I got to do what Barnabas did. Oh, oh, but, but Barnabas was sent by the Holy Spirit. That's not me, <laughs> right? God didn't speak to the leaders of my church. They lay hands and send me out. We did that for Morgan, but that's it, right? She was sent as a missionary somewhere else, so there we go. We don't have to do what Barnabas did because... We got a different story than Barnabas, but here's what I would remind you of. Here's what I stress over and over and over again, and intentionally pointing back to this passage and repeating this passage so that you will get it deep into your hearts and minds. Here's the reality. Jesus has clearly spoken to you, all of you, telling you that your mission is to share the gospel message with other people too. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore... And make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's not just a text given to the disciples who are standing on the hilltop, to men like Barnabas who are commissioned by the church. It's given to you. It's given to me as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. That's our calling from the Lord himself. He is sending us to fulfill this mission. So we too have been sent by the Holy Spirit to this place, in this moment, to be part of his work that's taking place right here. Barnabas was sent back to Cyprus. You and I have been sent to Philadelphia, Palmyra, all these little surrounding areas around us. So Barnabas, yes, he's sent as a missionary formally, which meant for him the way his ministry was going to look was he'd go to a place and preach the gospel to a people for a period of time and then have to move on to a new location and a new group of people so the gospel could continue to go forward into the frontier. But you and I, we have been placed here in this place as missionaries who are going to dig roots who are going to live and share the message of Jesus, probably not for most of you through a formal proclamation of a sermon like Barnabas did, like I do, but through relationships, through community with people, over your kitchen table, over a cup of coffee somewhere. Maybe, this would be crazy, right? Maybe even at a ball game, when you're sitting next to someone cheering on the team, there's an opportunity for you to share about Jesus and who he is and what he's done with one of the people screaming next to you. None of us live in this moment, in this place, with all these people around us that are here by accident. That's exactly what Acts 17.26 tells us plainly. It is God, the scripture says, who has determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling places. He's put you, he's put me in his perfectly determined plan to be his witnesses, his disciple makers, working in this place at this 
time. There's no accidents with God. There's no coincidences with God. So those of you who who are like Barnabas, who are living in the place you grew up, he's an example to you, a challenge to you to share the message with those around us. But on the other side of it, there are several of us in this room, myself included, who didn't grow up here, who don't know exactly where everything is without using our GPSs on our phone, who don't know who used to own that farm or live in that house. And so when you give us directions, like, just turn left at old so-and-so's place, we have no idea what you're talking about. But for those of us who didn't grow up here, but who are here now, no matter where we came from, from Stringfield, from Columbia, from Quincy, from England, from Indonesia, from the Philippines, or anywhere else we may have grown up, Acts 17, 26 is true for us too. God has placed us right here, right now, as part of his perfect plan for our lives. So Barnabas is an example to those of you who grew up here and need to witness to those who you grew up with. He went back home to share the message of Jesus Christ, but Saul, he didn't grow up there. So he's our example in this text, right? He grew up somewhere else, felt the call, understood people need to know about Jesus, and so when God led for him to be able to go to the island of Cyprus, he didn't go, oh, hey, Barnabas, it's your turn, man. You, you know, I'm gonna, I'll step back. He began to powerfully share the gospel of Jesus Christ with other people. He knew that's where God had put him for that season, and he went about eagerly, intentionally preaching the name of Jesus. So those of us who didn't grow up in this place, closest place to heaven on earth that we could possibly be, we have an example and a challenge to motivate us in living out our Christian calling too. All of us should look at this text, look at these examples, and say we want to be like Saul, like Barnabas, and understand we too have been sent by the Spirit to be his witnesses right here where we are today. Now, that's just the introduction. (laughs) The main thing I want us to get this morning is I want to spend a little time exploring and understanding what took place on that island according to Luke how the ministry unfolded for these men that we just read about. Barnabas and Saul, they decide we're going to go tell people about Jesus. And like I said, they ended up traveling from the, the place of Antioch over to the island. They landed on the east side of the island. And then they worked their way, Luke says, all the way across the island to the western side. And if, you, if geography wasn't your, your strong suit, the island of Cyprus is a large island. It's about 140 miles Long, So you're talking about the distance for us to drive from here to like St. Louis, okay? And they walked and they stopped at villages and towns and shared about the name of Jesus all over this island of Cyprus. But Luke doesn't record that they're met with great success, right? He just kind of very quickly says, and they go from that city on the eastern side to this city on the western side, and we don't really learn about what takes place through all of that. And my belief is they didn't actually see great success, during that whole time of travel across the island until Luke focuses in on this conflict that takes place on the western side. Part of the reason I don't think they were met with great, incredible success is because later, after this whole first missionary journey is done, which is where we're going to end this series, so we won't quite get to uh, the start of the second missionary journey this year, but when the second missionary journey begins to take place, Saul and Barnabas decide to split up. And do you know where Barnabas goes? right back here to Cyprus. There was more work to do. 
I think he traveled all across the island. They have this great encounter, this powerful encounter on the western side. There is a conversion. There is a believer made there. But I think he's remembering, by the time it's ready to start the second missionary journey, he's remembering, man, I went through so many places as we journeyed across Cyprus, and the gospel did not take root everywhere we went. We got to go back. We got to preach Jesus again. We got to see these people really get saved. So he ends up back there later. But by the time they get over to the western side of the island, we see a really powerful encounter, and we do see a conversion take place. And that's what I want us to focus on. But let me give you a, a little aside here, because I, I hopefully it'll be helpful to you. I was thinking about all of this, and I wasn't sure if I was going to talk about any of this um, today. But then last night, we're, we're eating a, a late dinner. Um, after the event, we had some things to do and get set up. And so by the time we got to dinner, it was, it was fairly late. We were getting close to bedtime and uh, needed to start our bedtime routine after we got done eating. But we're sitting there uh, having dinner, and Tobias says, so, Dad, you know, what are we going to preach on tomorrow at church? So I give him a little brief overview of the text here that we're talking about, and a little summary. He's like, wow, that sounds, that sounds pretty cool. He says, well, hey, before I go uh, get my shower and get ready for bed, could I read that story in the Bible? Acts, Acts 13 is what you said? I said, yeah. I said, that's great, buddy. Why don't you grab that? So he grabs his Bible, opens it up, begins reading the story. And as he's reading the story, he stops to ask some questions that maybe are questions that popped up in your mind when we read through the story just a few minutes ago. So we read this story, and what stood out first to Tobiah was the mention of this opponent that Saul and Barnabas faced there in Acts chapter 13, verses 6, and then verse 8, because it tells us something that, that probably triggers at least a, a thought in your mind when you hear this. It says, they encountered a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. And of course, Tobiah stops. He's like, wait, what? Jesus? But this is a magician? And uh, What are we talking about here? So he has questions about this name, and, and maybe some of you do too. So let me, let me talk a little bit more about names. We talked about names a little bit last week, and let me, let me flesh that out just a little bit more for you today. So last week, if you were here or you listened to the sermon afterwards, you know we talked about how Jesus is the first name of our Savior, and his last name is not Christ, right? That's a title that is given to him. So when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Savior, Jesus the Anointed One. That's the meaning of the word Christ. Because in that day, in Hebrew culture, people did not have last names the way you and I have last names. Right? This is actually a fairly recent thing in the history of the world. For most of the time, they would just identify you by your name, your first name. And if we needed to clarify, because there's like two Johns, we would say John, son of Dave. You know, like that's how we clarified it. Or John, who's from that city over there, not that city over there, right? So in Hebrew culture, that's the way it was for a long time. They would simply identify someone by their first name and then whose son they were. So you actually see this in the Bible. If you ever wondered about names like this where you see bar something, what does that mean? Why are, why are people named like that? That's the Hebrew way for identifying who the father of a person was. So this, this guy's name here, the, the Hebrew name he's going by is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus. Now, Tobiah's immediate question, of course, is like, wait, like, Jesus-Jesus? <laughs> he had a son? Like, no. Jesus of Nazareth, our Savior, did not have a son. Jesus, as I said last week, he, he was uh, Jesus' first name, and his last name was Bar-Joseph. That's what they would have called him, Jesus, son of Joseph, because that was his earthly adoptive Father, But this man, this magician who stands in opposition to Saul and Barnabas, his Hebrew name is Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, because Jesus in that day is a very common Hebrew name. 
In Hebrew, the way you would actually pronounce that name, maybe you have heard this somewhere on a YouTube video or something in a conversation, the name of Jesus in Hebrew is actually Yeshua. And that's a pretty common name at that point in history. The name Yeshua means Savior. It's actually the same Hebrew name as Joshua. So this is the, the kind of common name. Like we have a lot of Joshuas today in English, right? It's the same in Hebrew culture. A lot of young boys were named Yeshua because it meant Savior and it reminded people, hey, we as a people are waiting, longing for a Savior to come. So we say Jesus in English because we didn't directly translate from the Hebrew Yeshua, but we actually use the Greek translation of that, Jesus. So we say Jesus Christ in English because in Greek, what people said to identify who Jesus was was Jesus Christus. Sounds very much like Jesus Christ. You can see how we derived that from there. In Hebrew, he was called Yeshua Mashiach. Yeshua Mashiach sounds like Messiah, right? Where we get that word from at the second part. Now, I explain all of that because we're dealing with multiple languages in the Bible. And most of us in this room, if you know different languages, probably don't know English as well as Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew, (laughs) right? You probably took French or you took Spanish in school. Greek and Hebrew aren't typically taught at uh, our public schools. So that would be great. Jason, let's work on that. I think that would be fantastic. So we speak English, right? But we have Greek in the New Testament as the original language. We have Hebrew and Aramaic in the Old Testament. And you have names that come out of the Greek language and out of the Hebrew language. And they seem really, really foreign to us. But with a little explanation like this, we can understand what's being said. So let me clarify one other thing (laughs) while we're on the topic of names. Why not? I want to keep us from slipping into air unintentionally. And so when, when we talk about there being power in the name of Jesus, that is true. But we want to be really clear that the power is not in the name itself. It's in the person who we are talking about, right? So, because people do slip into this, and we think, well, the name of Jesus is just power. Well, Jesus is just the way we pronounce it in English, right? There's no difference for us in, ta- in praying in the name of Jesus or Yeshua or Jesus, it's just different ways and different languages of speaking of the same name. So, so there's nothing mystical about us using the name of Jesus like it's some kind of magical incantation, <laughs> right? And how we pronounce that name or which language we say his name in doesn't change anything because when we pray in the name of Jesus, it's not, oh, now there's power because we said the right word. It's not abracadabra. It's because we're appealing to the one who the name represents. We're appealing to the one who's the living, true God with all power, grace, and mercy for us, right? The, the power is in Jesus Christ, not just the name we use to refer to him, okay? And one more common misunderstanding while we're on names, because it's in the text here, actually. You see in this text that Luke gives us two names for this magician, right? You have Bar-Jesus, his Hebrew name that he would have used when he was with Jewish people, and then you have Elimus, the magician, which is a Greek name that he used when he was with Greek-speaking people, Roman citizens, others like that. The other person that he gives us two names for here in this text is not the person we're opposed to, but one of our examples. Who else is named with two names here in the text? Paul, who is also called Saul, right? So let me just dispel one more common, common misunderstanding some people have since we're already way down the rabbit hole here. If you remember back when we walked through Acts chapter 9, which is where Saul is converted on the road to Damascus, 
If you were paying attention to the text, you noticed that in the text, Jesus never changes Saul's name. That doesn't happen at his conversion. It doesn't happen at his baptism. It doesn't happen when he goes to Jerusalem. He's always, throughout that entire text, referred to as Saul. He's referred to as Saul all the way up to this very point in Acts chapter 13. So despite what you may have heard, the change in referring to Saul as referring to him as Paul has nothing to do with the change that he received at salvation. His name was actually never changed. You remember that Saul was born in the city of Tarsus, and Saul tells us as part of his testimony he was a Jew by birth, but he was also a Roman citizen, which meant from the moment little baby Saul was born, he was given two names. Saul, his Hebrew name, which would have been used in all the Jewish circles. It's what he used when he went to Jerusalem. It's what he used on the way to Damascus because he was going as part of the Jewish religious system. He was called Saul by those who spoke Hebrew or Aramaic as their primary language. But little baby Saul would have also been called Paul when he was with Roman citizens, people who spoke the Greek language. So forever, this was who Saul was. He was Saul also known as Paul, just depending on which group of people he was around. That's why Luke makes no big deal of it here in Acts chapter 13, verses 9 and 10. He just says, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at this man and said, right? So he just, it's just casual for him because he understood the culture, but for some of us, that's like brand new. We never had heard that before. So, okay, now you know. There is a shift that takes place here at this point. And from this moment on in the book of Acts, you see Paul always referred to as Paul. But it doesn't have anything to do with the fact that Paul was saved now when he wasn't saved before. He was saved chapters ago in Acts chapter 9, years before this whole missionary journey. The reason why Luke now shifts from calling him Saul to calling him Paul is because of who Paul is now spending the majority of his time with. with Roman people, Gentiles, people who spoke Greek. So Saul is going to be identified as Paul because that was the name those people used for him as he began this missionary work primarily now with Gentile people, which is really good news for us because you and I are all in this room Gentiles. And we should be so incredibly grateful to see this and recognize here the Lord was leading them to begin to share the message that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus is the Christ with Gentile people, which is how all these years later, we today sit here having heard the message and received Jesus as our Savior. It's an incredible thing. So it sounds really cool, and some pastors I know preach it that way. You know, God changed Saul to a Paul because they're drawing on the fact that God does at time change names, right? Abram was renamed to Abraham in the Old Testament. Uh, Jacob was renamed Israel by God. That just wasn't the case with Saul. So paying attention to the text, we know he always was called Saul in Hebrew context, Paul in Roman ones. Okay, so let's bring it all back now, way back up the rabbit trail. Back to this magician who we're talking about, Bar-Jesus. We notice that Luke gives us two names for him too, his Hebrew name and his Greek name, and I think he does that rather than just give us the Greek name because the meaning of this Hebrew name, Bar-Jesus, son of Jesus, or son of salvation, has a meaning that Paul picks up on in his response. Listen to how Paul, or Saul, speaks to him in verse 9. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
For behold, now the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. What's the first thing out of Paul's mouth in response to this guy? Son of the what? Devil. His name meant he was the son of Jesus, son of a savior. And Paul says, you're not the son of anyone who can save. You are the son of the devil because you are an enemy of righteousness, full of deceit and villainy. This guy is not the first person to oppose the message of Jesus Christ, right? And he's not the first person or the only person where we find language like this in the scripture, harsh language. This was Tobias' second question to me last night, was after he read it, he said, wow, Paul seems kind of mad. <laughs> like, was that okay for him to do, Dad? He seems kind of angry with all these mean things he's saying about this guy. Was that all right? And my answer was, yeah, Paul was right to respond so passionately to this man. Because Paul was that passionate about the truth and the message of where real salvation came from. It would not be found in following the magic of bar Jesus. It would only become in knowing Jesus the Christ of Nazareth. So, so yeah, it was good for Paul to be this strong in this opposition to him. And Paul's not the only guy who does it. Paul's not just a hothead. Some people want to really hate on Paul. Paul wasn't the only apostle who responded like this to false teachers. If you remember back in Acts chapter 8, we saw Peter encounter a guy named Simon the magician, right, who was trying to lead people astray there too in Samaria. And Peter has really strong words for him there. The Apostle John, likewise, has really strong words about false teachers in his epistles that we read of in Scripture as well. The reason these guys are so passionate, so direct, is because the truth really matters. And to be opposed to Jesus and to try and lead people away from the real Jesus is an incredibly serious thing. So Paul, in Acts chapter 13, he does not shrink back from this confrontation, from confronting this false prophet, and God actually enables him to pronounce a judgment upon the magician, blinding him physically, and the result is the result of what signs and wonders are always supposed to point to. The only reason we should ever seek, ever pursue, ever want to see signs and wonders take place is what took place as a result of this. God vindicated the truthfulness of the message of the gospel and drew a lost sinner into salvation. That's verse 12. Then, after seeing the sign of wonder, the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So here's, here's the, the last point, the main point for today is this. God saves people through his gospel being proclaimed. And I don't want us to hear that as we're wrapping up the message and just go, yeah, sure, I mean, that's simple, that's basic, that's Christianity, absolutely. Just nod, let's move on, let's, let's go to lunch. Let this be a statement that really sinks in. God saves people through his gospel being proclaimed. That's the whole point of this passage throughout the book of Acts. God was working on the island of Cyprus through Saul and Barnabas, proclaiming the message so that this man, this Roman proconsul, through the confrontation, through the overcoming of this false teacher who opposed the message of Jesus, would experience salvation. And that's what God does today, too. 
When we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, when we share who he is, what he has done, when we operate the way we're supposed to as missionaries on our home turf like Barnabas or missionaries in a different culture and place that we're still maybe figuring out like Saul was, when we share about who Jesus is here in these areas, we can expect this same result. God saves people through his gospel being proclaimed. For me, this is the truth I have to keep coming back to in order to to build up my heart and to refocus my thoughts and to give me strength when I get weary, to remind me of the purpose of why I do what I do, to help me see the big picture when life's really busy and there's lots of things that need to take place and the tasks seem never-ending and I'm tired and a nap sounds great, but I lay down and I tried to lay down yesterday and laid there for an hour and a half. I couldn't sleep, couldn't turn my mind off. When I'm worn out, this is what I come back to. It's worth spending my life proclaiming the gospel. Why? Because God saves people through his gospel being proclaimed. And I want to stress that to you, and I want to repeat that to you over and over and over again, because if you get that truth into your heart, into your life as well, then it will change how you live. If you are going to grasp this and fight for this to be deep in your heart and your mind and you work so that this comes out in your actions and your words as you live this life here, then it will lead to all of us as a people, as a church body, seeing fruit develop, to seeing the mission move forward in our time, to experiencing the growth that God has called us to long for. So, as we wrap up, Last week, I challenged us as a church with a call to fasting and prayer on Thursdays. And maybe you did that this last week. Maybe, maybe you, you missed that. Go back, listen to last week's message if you did. Um, you want to hear more about why we're doing that. Um, maybe this will be your first week to do that. So as some of us, I'm hoping most of us in our church family, will spend some time fasting and praying later this week. Let's make this a key point of our prayers this week that we would ask to see God work through us right now. Not not just through others who are going to come later, but through you and me, that we would know and believe and then live like it's true that we have been sent by the Spirit to this moment, to this place, to these people that we have relationships with. Let's ask God to use us as he used Saul and Barnabas, that we would see God save people through his gospel being proclaimed. Worship team, if you'll come, they're going to lead us in a final song as we ask the Lord now to make us ready for this coming week, for the opportunities that lie outside these doors, that we would be used by him in these ways. So let's take these few moments to to pray, to ask the Lord to motivate us, to strengthen us, to renew us, to ready us, to be sent out of this church building in Nelsonville into the mission field that God's put us into. If you have any needs in your life that you'd like to pray about, please come to these altars. They're open every, every time we get to this moment in the service. I hope you don't need the invitation, but I'll extend it again. If you have any need, big or small, you want something prayed for, come see me. Come tap me on the shoulder. Tell me about that. Let's pray together for those things. Let's take up this opportunity to be made ready by God for the mission that he has given to us as we worship him.